This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Something is happening when it comes to young men in America and, for that matter, around the world. It might be better stated that something is not happening. What is not happening is that boys are not moving into manhood at anything like what we might describe as on schedule. Instead, we've entered a new, very, very troubling period in American life in which the transition from boyhood to manhood is anything but clear, and in many cases, anything but happening. Kay Heimowitz is the William E. Simon Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, one of the nation's most important think tanks. She's also a contributing editor of City Journal. She writes extensively on issues including childhood, family issues, poverty, and cultural change in America. You may know her well through her books, including Marriage and Caste in America, Liberation's Children, and now her newest book, Manning Up, How the Rise of Women is Turning Men into Boys. Kay Heimowitz really launched an assault upon the contemporary idea of uh, manhood and of adulthood in an article published in the Wall Street Journal on February the 10th of 2011 entitled, Where Have the Good Men Gone? Kay Heimowitz, welcome to Thinking in Public. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I really enjoyed your article in the Wall Street Journal, even more your book. But let's let's go to the journal article for just a moment, because that's where a lot of Americans, uh, I, I think a frighteningly large percentage of Americans, were confronted with an issue that is one of the most significant demographic and cultural realities of our time. Why do you think most Americans haven't noticed what you then made headline news? Well, I think they have noticed certain things. They've noticed, for instance, that it's taking longer to grow up. Uh, that that's uh, an observation, an important one in the book, and one that uh, I try to analyze. I think they are aware that women are starting to outperform boys, uh, uh, men. I think that they're, you know, if if nothing else, seeing evidence of it on television all the time. Uh, and certainly, I hear from a lot of teachers, for instance, who uh, know exactly what I'm talking about. That the girls uh, in their classrooms seem more together more ambitious, more organized, uh, and um, uh, more committed to their studies than, than boys do. And this shows all the way through college. I was in a bookstore the other day looking at the education section, and there were several books uh, that, were, that were directed towards particular learning problems, classroom problems, homework and academic problems, and none of them were addressed specifically to girls, and six in a row were addressed specifically to boys. So if you're an educator, you surely do know about this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, my book really is about the uh, age group I call pre-adults. That's people in their 20s and early 30s. But the, there are tremendous implications uh, uh, when we when we have a 57 percent of, uh, of college graduates are female now. There are big implications about what's going on in the schools, in the elementary schools and the high schools. Uh, this does seem to stretch way back into the elementary schools, and uh, it's certainly something that we need to be looking at a little more carefully. Uh, what is it that's turning boys off to school? Why are we having to juggle these kids? And uh, uh, something's got to got to give on that on those accounts. Well, we're going to look at the much broader picture, which you do so well in your book, in just a moment. But I want to go back to my originating question about why many people don't see this, and, and I want to make a suggestion, and that is that. I think if you are an educator, if you are if you're working with young adults, if you're an employer looking at the big picture, you know this. But I'm amazed by how many people see this only anecdotally. 
they, they think it's about their son and their daughter or, or the young man that their daughter is dating. Many people seem to misunderstand that this is a fundamental reshaping of our culture. It, it, it's tied to our economy, to our entertainment industry, uh, to the new information age and all the rest. This is not something that's just going to be reversed by speaking to, uh, to, to the young man in the bedroom down the room and saying, ship up. Well, that's true. I think people do tend to personalize this. Uh, and, you know, often I'll hear from someone saying, oh, yes, I noticed that with my kids. You know, and I am much more worried about my son. So I think you're quite right about that. And it could very well be because the public discussion has been so muted on the topic, in large measure, I think, because the uh, feminist um, conversation, the feminist framing of these issues has dominated uh, the public discussion so much, so that really the uh, issue, was, according to public policy, according to uh, academic, the academic world, the, the issue we need to confront is is the problem of girls and women. Uh, so now we're seeing some other side, the other side of this, which is the um, emergence of a, of a of a kind of a child man in uh, from older boys, and and the emergence of the poor students on and among uh, younger boys, um, there's no uh, room for that for that discussion. So I think that's part of what's going on here. Yeah, and, and as a matter of fact, I, I want to get to this in just a moment, but let me just make reference to the fact now that if you read your Wall Street Journal uh, piece, uh, you would actually not understand what's on the cover of your book. The subtitle of your book is How the Rise of Women Has Turned Men into Boys, the Wall Street Journal piece really ignored that dimension of it altogether. Well, the Wall Street Journal piece was an excerpt of an excerpt. <laughs> so, so yes, it didn't get the entire argument of the book in there. Uh, there is some material, a good deal of material in the book about um, men's reaction to the rise of women. But a lot of what's going on, I think, uh, what's happening to, to boys and men uh, is not is not women's fault exactly. I mean, right. people keep accusing me of blaming women. I think that's a, that's really a very wrong way of looking at it. Uh, we're talking about mammoth, just tectonic changes in the economy uh, and in the culture uh, that are, have really left men adrift, and that's really what I'm, I'm focused on. Well, that's what I want to focus on for the next few minutes, and because you in your book acknowledge something that very few who are writing about the immediate problem recognize, and that is. To use the language that, that I speak of when I talk about this, there was a first transformation that took place before the, the second transformation. And, and your, your point to that in terms of the fact that uh, the 20th century already saw a major shift in the way that boys would have traditionally moved into manhood. Let's talk about that for a moment. Before we ever get to kind of postmodern America and the video games and all the rest, something happened back in the early 20th century. Right. Well, I I have a lot of history. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, I don't spend too many uh, too many pages on it, but there there's uh, you know as well researched. So, one of the things that I started to notice was that the concern about men and where they fit into the modern world goes really back even into the 19th century, because as as men found themselves more. Uh, outside of the home, as they were, you know, working um, in offices and that kind of thing, uh, 
um, the the home became much more dominated by women than it had been in the in the past. The, the word that sometimes used is feminized, and there was this restlessness that you could see uh, emerge from uh, a lot of uh, in in the popular culture that was expressed through the popular culture. So, for instance, there were magazines that uh, that uh, started to be published for men uh, that were things like you know about uh, uh, crimes and and uh, police police stories and stuff like that, and it all seemed to be a kind of escape that men were looking for from the middle class home. They were they were very restless, and then that that eventually leads into the most radical and dramatic uh, expression of that, which was Playboy magazine. Well, what I'm talking about is the fact that uh, the, the route to manhood for most boys throughout most of human history was uh, short and very easily defined. At one moment, you were the son inside the house. The next moment, you were the blacksmith like your father. Uh, you, you grew up on the farm, right. and you, right. you simply took over the agrarian responsibilities. In the early 20th century, it's kind of like the second stage, you might say, the Industrial Revolution. Uh, the development, for instance, of the American Community High School was the recognition that there had to be some kind of training for uh, for boys to right. get them ready for a workforce that was primarily then manufacturing, and so yeah. you you had the rise of the of the high school and of the peer directed culture there, and and then you had the development of what we really would call adolescence, and in, in which there was this period of, of 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 transition between childhood and adulthood. But now in the new knowledge economy, and you demonstrate this very well in your book, there's this second transformation where high school is not nearly enough, college isn't even now for many jobs enough. Uh, We're now in an economic transition that means that many young men, when they are boys, are looking at 15 to 20 years of preparation before they are fully ready to enter into the society. That's right. Uh, What I call pre-adulthood, what some sociologists refer to as emerging adulthood, this period between about 20, 21 to the early 30s, is a period of preparation. And it resembles in that way the emergence of adolescence in the early 20th century, which was also a new period of preparation that was required in a new manufacturing economy. Um, this new period uh, is much less scripted. Uh, it's much less uh, understood, and it's much less institutionalized. And what I mean by that is uh, people are not in uh, school, uh, high school, or they may be in college for part of it, but most of it is completely voluntary and completely self designed. So you need an awful lot of wherewithal, an awful lot of drive and determination and really creativity to kind of figure out your way through this knowledge economy. Um, and, you know, I should just say the knowledge economy, um, it, you know, is, is based on jobs that require a lot of thinking, a lot of analyzing and computing uh, and uh, communication skills. And not only does it require college and often graduate school or professional school, uh, it also requires a lot of early uh, stage moving around. Uh, People move from internship to jobs, from city to city, from country to country even. Uh, And this means that you have a much longer period where you uh, are probably not going to be able to settle down. Well, in this process, it is boys and young men who are particularly having difficulty. Uh, For instance, right now, as, as you've indicated, and by the way, since you've written your book, the statistics are, are only more exaggerated. The, the displacement of young men on American college campuses, and it is that, by the way. It's not just that there are more women. It is actually that there are fewer young men on many of these campuses. Yeah. 
uh, it is now to the point that many canvases are marking a, a 60-40 split between uh, the women and the men with far more young women than young men. And when it comes to graduates, even more so. And uh, in a knowledge economy, this just means that young men are getting further and further behind. That's exactly right. Uh, so this is a, a big concern. Um, you know, if you have 57 or 60 percent of college graduates are women, what happens, uh, you know, even if, if it takes a much longer time to settle down, most people still want to uh, get married and have children. Well, ha- where are these women supposed to find their husbands? You know, if they're, they're either going to marry men who are less educated than they are, uh, or they're going to remain single. And I think the former is unlikely from what I've seen. Uh, there's some more marrying, da- marrying down, as it might be called, among women over the last decade, but uh, not an awful lot, and those marriages tend to be much more fragile. Yeah, as a matter of fact, there's no precedent in human history for women yeah. marrying men with less economic ability and less education and less social status and, and that working. That, that, exactly right. I've just written a piece on this very, very topic, um, and uh, it's something that people don't like to talk about because we like to pretend that marriage really is just about love and finding your soulmate, and class has nothing to do with it. But of course, it does a great deal. Uh, people are more likely to uh, be attracted to people who with whom they share their values and um, and a mindset. You know, when I read your book, you you deal a great deal with how the entertainment culture both reflects and I think kind of accelerates these trends. You talk about the the dude movies, the uh, the the really crass humor, the the kind of stuff that you find uh, on the cable channels, and uh, you know everything from Spike TV to the Comedy Network and all the rest. But let me ask you a question: Do, do you think that that is at all also signaling something of a uh, of an anxiety about this? I mean, I think an awful lot of that entertainment. Is is really a, a fairly thinly disguised cry for help? Well, I think there's something to that. Uh, one of the movies that uh, you know I really call the anthem of the what I call the child man, the the young adult uh, man who's not quite an adult, not quite a child, is the movie uh, Knocked Up. And in that movie, there's a moment. I, I don't know uh, whether you're familiar with it, but the 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 premise is that the young man has gotten gotten a woman that he met at a bar pregnant. Uh, she is they barely know each other, but they they decide to try to uh, get to know each other as she decide and she wants to have the baby. Uh, and at some point, he, the main character whose name I've forgotten, but it was played by uh, Seth Rogen. Uh, goes to his father uh, and says, I don't know what to do. He says, what's the right thing for me to do here? And his father looks at him and says, what are you asking me for? I've been married three times. And it's a kind of, you know, so yes, there is this cry for help. Like, how do I grow up? And can somebody out there help me? And a lot of young men have found that their fathers are not much used to them. Kay Heimowitz is one of those observers who pulls together all of this kind of demographic and cultural data and puts it into a picture that really paints the landscape as it is. Most of what she draws from is publicly accessible, and the points that she makes are largely incontrovertible. But that's not to say they're not controversial. That's why a conversation like this, well, it has to continue.
In your book, Manning Up, you talk about this shift as a momentous sociological development. Uh, as you say, it's a major demographic reality. The statistics continue to mount, and, and it, it, it is indeed an avalanche of data that come at us. And uh, there are some big questions that come out of this, but I guess the most immediate question most of us have is, is whether or not there is any reversibility to this. How, how do you see that, that question? Yeah, you know, I don't really think so. Uh, I think that there's very there are very good reasons why people are delaying marriage. Uh, there are it's a necessary response to this economy. It's a necessary response also to the fact that women also want to want to play a role in the knowledge economy. Many of these jobs, as I describe in my book, are actually very appealing, especially to young women. Uh, they are allow them to use their talents and creative uh, uh, senses in, in ways that jobs didn't used to allow you to do. So I don't, you know, I'm uh, not interested in um, suggesting that women should, you know, just give up on the on careers. I think there are very good reasons they're attracted to to uh, working in this economy, though I, I also think that they're going to want to have children and probably cut back at various points in their careers. So I don't I don't see that changing, the delayed adulthood, the delay in marriage. What I think can be changed, I think we can maybe learn to negotiate this very changed period of life a little bit better than we have. I think women need to be a lot smarter about their love lives, equally as smart as they are about their careers, because they are treating the 20s, um, especially the early 20s, a little too casually. Uh, and giving too much sustenance to the child man, um, you know, and not demanding enough from him. And I think we need to also uh, concentrate a lot more on on reaffirming for men uh, how necessary they are, not just to, uh, how necessary it is not just for them to achieve in school, but how necessary they are to family life. Because one of the, one of the themes we haven't talked about yet is that I, I think that the message, and that this is subliminal, it's not, you know, it, most people are not actually saying this, uh, is that they're optional to family life. Uh, women can do it on their own. They are doing it on their own. Uh, occasionally they even talk about, uh, you know, this the single strong mother, the strong single mother, I should say. Uh, and um, I think that message has gotten through to boys as just back off and, you know, if we call on you, It'll be nice, but do we really need you? Well, maybe not. Well, I've been making an argument for many years in print and public and in controversy that uh, that I see made by few others, and I was absolutely thrilled to find in one sentence where you make the same argument in your book. You say adult manhood has almost universally been equated with marriage and fatherhood. I just want to amplify that and say if you look through literature, and I know that that's part of your academic background, uh, if you look uh, through the history of of almost any civilization, it is impossible to argue with that. But that is somehow now a controversial statement. Yes, uh, this is so true. And it's an anthropological fact. It is a historical fact. The man's role was, uh, you know, a boy growing up knew he was going to be a husband and father. That's where he was going. And I think that for some young men today, uh, not only is that, is the message that, uh, they're they're optional. Uh, the message is also that well, maybe they won't do that. You know, it, it's completely voluntary on their part as well. And many young men say, well, 
not only might I not do that and not become husband and father, uh, I'm having a really good time the way things are. I mean, you hear different kind of responses from men. Some of them talk the way I'm saying. They're, you know, I've had any number of men say to me, uh, I'm a guy. I'll wait till I'm 35 or 40. Uh, of course, women don't have that luxury, and I think this leads to certain tensions between the sexes, which I try to describe in one of my chapters in the dating scene. Well, that's exactly uh, where I want to go. You, you talk about, uh, well, I'll put words in your mouth here just, just to a okay. bit to say that uh, there was a compact or a covenant between the genders. Uh, you describe it in your own way in the book, and uh, and, and that's really been, well, it you have to say it's at least a bilateral renegotiation. If the men aren't doing what uh, what men had been expected to do, uh, women are also following a very different life script. Girls moving into womanhood are following a very different life script, and, and they really are moving apart from each other in terms of how this story is told. Exactly. Uh, the more that women uh, have are focused on careers um, in their early 20s, the more men can, you know, remove themselves from thinking about uh, their future lives as husbands and fathers. And uh, what I see happening in many cases is that when a woman then gets to their mid-20s or late-20s, or possibly they, they're a little slowing if it's not till their early 30s, uh, and, they, and they start to hear that ticking uh, biological clock, it, it gets louder and louder, and they look around, and the guys uh, are saying, "What well, you know? Either the or there's some of the guys, the more family-oriented guys, have, have already married, or they're a child men of the sort that I describe in the book, who just think, think, well, why should I settle down right now if I want to do it when I'm 40? That's when I'll do it.' And uh, there are women who are left high and dry. The numbers aren't huge. Most um, most people uh, w- want to get married, uh, do get married. But the numbers are growing, and we are seeing less marriage uh, and less childbearing among uh, among college-educated women than we were just a little while ago. And we're seeing uh, more single mothers. Mar- and that's uh, yeah. more the growth of single mothers, particularly sperm donor uh, mothers. Yeah, and actually those numbers are uh, – they're not a small uptick here. We're talking about a, a major demographic wave that is coming at us, especially when it comes to – the, uh, the the fewer young women who are getting married, and even to a greater degree, the fewer babies coming from those unions. Mark right. Regnerus at the University of Texas and others have been doing work, uh, and, and there's another side to this, and that is that that feminists had uh, had thought that getting women into these positions of uh, of uh, college and university and and becoming graduates and moving into the workforce that it, that it would uh, it would empower women, but. Regnerus and, and his colleagues are showing that something very interesting happening in this and very unexpected, and that is that, for instance, if you go to an elite university and uh, you go into the academic programs where the women outnumber men by a 60-40 or sometimes even greater percentage, uh, the men are the ones who end up with the power because what happens is is that every one of those young women, by and large, is looking for a husband and the pool is now very small, which means the power differential has gone to the young men. And if they're not willing right now to get married, well, it turns out that, uh, well, as, as Regnerus puts it, uh, they're able to have all the sex they want without any demand for marriage because they hold the power. Uh, I agree with Regnerus's interpretation up to a point. What I think he leaves out 
is that it's not all men who get the benefits of this uh, of this new arrangement uh, because women still are choosing and they are mm-hmm. choosy uh, and they are, tend to choose the more what you know for lack of a better term we'll call the alpha male the more you know the more attractive more dominant more socially um, popular men on campus so that those men of course can have whatever they want. Uh, and lots of women begging for their attention. It is actually not so true for what the people call in the vernacular beta males, for the guys who are a little less uh, socially attuned, who uh, are maybe spending an awful lot of time in, uh, you know, programming computers and maybe don't have a lot of the uh, the moves that the uh, big men on campus do. So I, I do think that it's uh, in some ways even uglier <laughs> than what Regner is. Yeah, is, I hear that. Uh, yeah, uh, is is uh, implying because there's there's there are some guys who are losing out here. Well, indeed, and and some of them are the ones who uh, who are counted on the success side by the educators and by the employers. Right. Uh, but but from a perspective of of the life script or uh, of their development into uh, assuming the full responsibilities of adulthood, it's not going well. Let me ask you a very specific question. You write at the level of public policy. Uh, a keen observer of these things from kind of the stratospheric level. Uh, what would you say to a to a set of parents uh, who have uh, who have, uh, you know, the challenge of raising boys. What, what, what would you say to them? Well, I would say to them, look, you are going to want to have a family someday. Uh, you know, when you look at surveys, I keep coming back to this, but people, people need to be uh, convinced that this is something you can say. Uh, when you look at surveys, almost all young people want to marry and have children someday. So, so parents should be saying to their kids, look, you want to be uh, a husband and father someday, and that has to be a, a key part of your thinking about your goal, about your future. How are you going to get there? I, I think that there's a, an assumption among a lot of young people that that's just something you don't have to plan or strategize. You can just wait for, um, the, you know, wait for the time, and then something magical will happen. This is a true uh, for a lot of women, of course, who uh, are been so focused on their careers and become uh, reach their 30s and are utterly shocked to find that it hasn't all fallen into place. I think men too need to be thinking much more strategically about who they want to be uh, when when they grow up. Uh, even if that does take longer than it might have for their own parents, uh, and what kind of life they want to have. You know, uh, there is this uh, sense of um, not just that this is a fun time, the 20s, but that you really don't need to worry about the implications of your behavior, of your your actions during that time, except insofar as it, it bears on your career. Now, how about at the level of public policy? Uh, you work in that level and, and uh, obviously have the concern here, but, you know, you could look at this, and I think it could be something like being back in the 1960s, uh, the late 60s, and being handed the Moynihan Report and, and trying to think, okay, I agree with every word of it, but what in the world do we do in terms of public policy with this? You know, 40 years later, we're still not sure what to do with that massive amount of incontrovertible research. Well, what do we do with this? What, what would you yeah. say if you're sitting down with, uh, with, with major leaders in, in the government and politics and, and they say, all right, Kay, what do we do? You know, I don't think there is a lot that the government can do. Uh, I think we need to be concentrating more, as I said before, on boys in school. I think we need to focus more on that. 
And uh, but what kind of policy would uh, promote uh, encourage men to be uh, uh, more mature? Uh, this has to. This is a cultural problem, and it seems to me that when the government has tried to get involved in the culture in the past, it hasn't done a very good job. Uh, and a lot of uh, unintended consequences have emerged. Uh, we could, I suppose, um, uh, do something on the order of uh, uh, the sperm banks. They, um, I mean, I've always argued that we should ha- there should no- be no such thing as anonymous sperm donation, but I don't think we're going to be able to get further than that, and that really is just tinkering around the edges. So I have to say, I don't really see... Uh, that the policy uh, has a lot to do here. I think, you know, what I wanted to do with my book was to start a conversation about some of the problems I see emerging from this new stage of life and from the rise of women. I think you have certainly accomplished your goal of starting a conversation, and I certainly want to thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. This is my pleasure. I really appreciate Kay Heimowitz coming on for that conversation because it gets us started down the road we need to follow in thinking about these things. In thinking about them not merely as those who find the statistics troubling and anecdotally and personally know the the stories behind the data, but because as Christians, we have an investment in this that goes beyond sociology, beyond politics and economics, and gets right to the heart of what it means to be human to be made for the glory of God, and to find God's glory at every stage of life. You look at the cover of this book by Kay Heimowitz, Manning Up, and you see the picture of a toddler boy wearing a shirt and tie and uh, having his feet in his daddy's shoes. He's looking down at his shoes as if he wonders what these things mean. And that is a very powerful picture, a depiction of what's going on in the lives of many boys and young men wondering, who am I supposed to grow up to be? Now, as we discussed, there has been a relatively easy transition from boyhood to manhood for most of human history. Uh, It was almost instantaneous. Uh, It was a very brief period of time in which the boy all of a sudden became the man. And the transition point was generally courtship and marriage. At that point, courtship was that transformation When the boy turned into a young man about to become a full-fledged adult, adulthood came with marriage, and with marriage came children, and with all of this came the cultural, social, economic, and political recognition that this is a man, no longer a boy. Well, contrast that with America as we are today, in which you don't have to just look at the big screens of our entertainment. You can often look right across the hall or right across the street and see exactly what we're talking about here. Young men, and by that we're defining it, as those between the ages of, say, 15 and 35, a 20-year period of time in which many young men are really not acting as men at all. It's one thing if you look at that as a 16-year-old. It's another thing with a 30-year-old. Now, the invention of adolescence is one of those things we can see as perhaps sociologically inevitable, but, uh, but not particularly helpful. The psychologists and the educators leapt upon it as an opportunity to define a period between childhood and adulthood that would be filled with all of the identity transitions that would be necessary for the young person to emerge in modern society knowing who he or she is. 
Well, it turns out that the development of the high school and the development of adolescence institutionalized this for most of the 20th century. But we need to recognize that there were other institutional assists for boys to turn into men during that period as well. Number one, when they did graduate from high school, they were basically ready to enter the workforce. And they did. They, they became workers. They entered into factories and the manufacturing economy. And uh, the transition was a little longer than it had been when they were working with dad on the farm and then just joined having a farm of their own. But it was still a defined period of time in which there was the expectation that a boy of 15 knew that by the time he was 20, he was going to be riveting bolts at the auto factory or he was going to be in the workforce in some very clearly expected way. Well, that then led to the period of adolescence when a lot of things were excused in this transition. The, the hijinks and uh, the pranks and the identity, the sturm and drang of the onks of adolescence, those things psychologists and educators just came to expect, and they told parents just, uh, you're going to have to deal with it. But that was about a four- or five-year period. Well, we now know that it is true when people say that college is the new high school and the graduate school is the new college. In other words, in a knowledge economy, in this great economic transformation, it's not just that a young man of 15 will know that he's going to be graduating from high school and going to the workforce. Now he knows that he, if he's going to be in a meaningful position in this economy, he'll have to go to college. But if he's going to have the kind of position that, uh, that most would aspire to, he's going to have to go beyond even college into some further preparation. If not graduate school, then internships. And he's going to have to start at a certain level and work his way in. And it's going to require both intellectual and social skills that many boys just do not have. Now, I said back in the 20th century that there were institutional assists, and, and sure they were. The schools had very clear in loco parentis authority. The, the schools were able to say, here is our expectation of you, young boy, and how you're going to grow into a man. There were clear social and cultural expectations, and there was a culture to enforce it. You had institutions such as the Boy Scouts, which emerged from what was then understood to be the boy problem of the early 20th century. And you had such things as compulsory military service. N nothing was more institutionalized in terms of the transition from boyhood to manhood than the experience of putting on a uniform and uh, moving from the authority of the father to the authority of a drill sergeant. But that is largely missing from young men and their lives as well. And so what we have now is absent fathers and the absent experience of these kind of institutional assists that used to help a boy know exactly what was expected of him. And again, you have the fact that the incontrovertible argument, that it's, it's simply so true throughout all societies and civilizations that it's beyond debate. Adulthood meant for males becoming a husband and a father. But these days, it's really not that way at all. And what has changed is the fact that there is a huge economic power that is invested in young men which is separated from their responsibilities as husbands and fathers. There's no longer the cultural expectation, and there's no longer the regulation of sexuality that used to make certain that marriage was the criterion, the defining issue, and thus the entry point for young men to get what they desperately craved, which is the, the comforts of a wife and the fullness of all that marriage promises. It meant that the obligations and the blessings, the benefits, and the enjoyments of marriage were all one package. But now they've been taken apart. Modern entertainment and the culture around us actually celebrates the fracturing of this unity. And one of the things we need to notice, Christians, is that many of us have been complicit in this as well. 
Now, I asked Kay Humowitz some very direct questions, and, and I was asking her knowing that she came from a worldview that was very compatible in the main with, with what I would believe and I would think, but that I would have to go beyond where she is and think as a Christian about how I would have to speak to young men and to myself and to my own son and to all those young men whom I dearly love and appreciate and say, we're going to have to do better than this. We're going to have to rethink this equation. We're going to have to be not only concerned about the sociological data and the massive transformations, we're going to have to be looking at what will be required of us to fully reflect the glory of God at every stage of our lives as Christian men. So what am I talking about there? I'm talking about the fact that, yes, I think Kay Heimwitz is exactly right. I don't think this is a problem that government can solve. I don't think this is something that is going to be demographically reversed. If anything, the trends are likely to get worse and not better. If you look at the college campus right now, and 60% of the undergraduate students are women, 40% are men, and the graduates have an even greater distinction, then the reality is this is not headed in a good direction. When you look at the fact that what will be required to put this picture back together again, the egg having fallen off the wall to put it back together again, would require a cultural cohesion that doesn't exist anymore. It would require agreement on so many of the most important value and moral questions that simply doesn't exist anymore. And that's why the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to have to be a counterculture in a way that many Christians have never previously conceived. We're going to have to be the people that say not only to young men but to young women, if you're going to follow the script that is handed to you by the secular world, then you're going to look exactly like what these statistics portray. The kind of conviction necessary to reverse these trends is not just to say yes to a young man, this is what is expected of you, and this is what we're going to encourage you to be, and this is what we're going to hold up for you as an ideal. It's also going to have to say to young women, you're going to have to decide whether you want to be a part of a community that includes young men you would want to marry, or whether you want to be a part of the community that is going to follow very different rules and end up with young men with whom you would want nothing to do. This is going to require Christian parenting at a different level than has been required in previous generations. It's going to require the church to help to arm its people by Christian and biblical teaching to understand how not to think the way the world thinks so that we won't simply live the way the world lives. This means that many of the choices that are now being presented both to young men and young women are going to have to be redefined if we're actually going to live in any way that is authentically Christian. Now, there are some who would hear me say that and would say, I know immediately where you're headed. Well, maybe you do and maybe you don't. Uh, This is not to say we just need to head back in something that would amount to cultural conservatism. Cultural conservatism has its limits. And one of the limits that is very clear in this case is that many of the economic incentives that cultural and economic conservatives consider so important are actually the very things that are breaking apart the wholeness which had previously marked human existence. In other words, you want to look at the problems of the family? Many of those are actually being caused by a consumer materialist society and by the kind of economic impulse to advancement that means you sacrifice family for economic gain. No, conservatism is not going to be enough. It's going to require a radical Christian commitment to a biblical understanding of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God, to be a man or a woman, to be a boy or a girl growing into manhood and womanhood, to be parents who are going to have to raise our children differently than those around us would consider the norm. It's going to require us to make educational and child-rearing choices that are different 
than those of our neighbors, it's going to require the church to hold out resources to young people in order to assist them to swim against the tide. And it's going to require us continually, especially to say to the most vulnerable among us, who of all things now turn out to be boys and young men, you really can't do this. This really is what you were made for. Marriage and fatherhood, these in the main are where you are headed. If you want to make a contribution to the kingdom of God, here is how it's done. If you want to grow up, play the man, as the scripture says, and do what a man does. Show up where a man shows up. Act as a man acts. And as Christian men, believe what Christian men believe. Live it out faithfully. That's going to require a countercultural revolution, the likes of which the world's never seen. But then again, maybe it has. When Christians are put to the test, maybe that's when we find out what we really believe. And when we get to show the world, it really can be done differently. Boys really can grow up to be men. Thanks for listening to Thinking in Public. I want to remind you about a very special event on the campus of Southern Seminary. On April the 29th, we'll have a preview day for those who are interested in seminary and perhaps considering God's calling in your life. We hope you'll come and join us. It'll be an immersion into the seminary experience. You'll get to meet our faculty. I'll get to meet you. And we'll have the experience of uh, talking about the things that are most important to us as you consider God's future direction for your life. That's April the 29th. You can find out more information by going to our website at sbts.edu or simply call our admissions office at 800-626-5525. I hope you'll go to my website for more information at albertmoeller.com. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash albertmoeller. For more information about all things related to Southern Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information about Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.